Companies mentioned herein are for illustrative purposes only, not intended as solicitation of the purchase of such securities, and do not constitute any investment advice or recommendation. Hello, my name is Ulrich Fugman, and I'm joined by my business partner, Edward Lees, through 22 years. And together, we run BNP Paribas Asset Management's Environmental Strategies Group. We're going to introduce you to a series of executives, all at the top of their field, for companies introducing exciting environmental solutions into the marketplace. You'll learn about their personal motivations, a bit about their companies as well, and we hope you find this informative. So with that in mind, let's meet our guest. And we are hosting Greenlight Biosciences today, so we're going to hear some very interesting things about an agri-tech company. And uh, joining us to talk about this in more detail is Dr. Andre Zerur, the CEO and co-founder. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here with you guys. So it would be great if you could start off by just telling us a little bit about your technology and the kind of markets that it impacts. Look, we have to grow a lot of food, is the bottom line. We have seven and a half billion people living in the planet, soon to be eight billion people, rapidly growing, uh, demanding more and better foods. A simple fact is that we lose up to 40% of the foods that we produce to all kinds of things, pathogens, pests, fungi, insects. And we need to protect those uh, food supplies from, from those pests and so on that would otherwise deplete them. And the way in which we have done that historically is by using chemicals chemical pesticides, chemical fertilizers, which tend to work pretty well in, in terms of protecting the crop, but have significant unintended side effects on the environment, on biodiversity, and over the long term on the food production systems themselves. So what Greenlight is trying to do is to bring a brand new generation of methods of controlling pests, of protecting food, of promoting food security, but in a way that is not only sustainable and clean, but actually good for the environment in a way that not only are we stopping pests from eating the food, but actually preserving the biodiversity and the land so that the land can continue to be productive for generations to come. Uh, this is not an easy problem, right? To be able to target something that specifically requires exquisite biology. You can't do it with simple chemistries because chemistries are non-specific. If you want to kill a bad insect, an insect that would otherwise destroy your crop with a chemical, what will happen is, yes, you will stop that insect, but you will also kill all the other insects that live on a field, which include things like pollinators, which of course are fundamental for food supply. So coming up with biology that is precise enough to only kill the organism that you're trying to stop, but be completely harmless to everything else, is incredibly difficult. So what we did is we chose a class of molecule called RNA, ribonucleic acid. Two years ago, the only people who knew about RNA were nerds like me, right? <laughs> or people who still remembered high school <laughs> biology. Most of us never heard of RNA. Uh, but, you know, the RNA that we use in fields to protect our food, to promote biodiversity, to promote sustainability, is the same molecule that essentially saved our society with mRNA vaccines. Everybody knows about mRNA vaccines. Well, we've been using RNA to protect our fields far longer than anybody has been using it uh, to promote vaccines. And so the idea of RNA, RNA is, to put it very simply, is the messenger of life, is what lives inside every living organism on the planet and carries messages inside that living organism. Those messages are what promote biological processes like metabolism, like respiration. And so by using RNA, we can stop some of those fundamental processes 
on the pests themselves. And because it operates at this molecular level, we can tailor those RNAs to be incredibly precise and just stop the pests that we're interested in stopping and nothing else. So to answer your question, we bring a brand new generation of RNA products to promote food security, to protect our crops, and to at the same time respect the biodiversity, protect pollinators, and promote a healthier way of growing food. And maybe just a follow-on question for that as you talk about the benefits of that specificity is that, you know, we've all become more and more, I think, conscious of what we put in our own bodies. We look more to organic food and, and the like. Um, maybe you could talk about the human health implication of how you replace commercial pesticides. Well, I mean, it, it is obvious. And in fact, the reason the company exists at all is because one of my children, we found out, has incredible sensitivities to some of the chemical pesticides that are commonly used. Now, this is not a well-known fact, and it's certainly not one that is widely publicized, but the classes of pesticides that we have, many of them are derived from nerve agents. They actually attack the nervous systems of insects. So it wouldn't be surprising to think that it could also be harmful to humans. Yes, they have unintended consequences on other bugs in the field, on the microbes on the soil, they certainly accumulate in water, but they also have deleterious effects on birds, on fish, and yes, on our children, on the farmers that, that are actually harvesting the crops. RNA, because it's highly specific and it's a biomolecule, does not have any of those problems. It doesn't accumulate in the environment. It is readily degraded into harmless compounds, and it certainly does not affect humans nearly in the same way that, that a chemical pesticide would. Because simply we don't have those targets that our RNA molecules are acting upon. Humans don't actually carry those genes and therefore those RNA molecules should be harmless uh, to anything other than the pests that we're trying to tackle. Well, that's powerful and, and certainly needed. Um, maybe with, with the, all of that in mind, it would be interesting to hear a little bit about some of the products you have in your pipeline today. Sure, I mean, the way in which we came up with this pipeline especially for our plant side of the business, for our food security side of the business, is we looked at what are the biggest problems that we are facing as humans. What are the biggest challenges in growing food scalably and sustainably? And, you know, we have plenty of examples. We've all heard about the problem with bees disappearing. They're not disappearing like we don't know what's happening to them. We know what's happening to them. We're taking their habitat away. We're spraying chemicals all over the place. Climate change has a significant impact on bees. And to make matters worse, they are susceptible to parasites. Well, one of our first products is an anti-parasitic RNA for bees to try to prevent bees from becoming infected and undergoing colony collapse, which is one of the major issues that beekeepers all around the world have to grapple with. And by the way, beekeepers are really the oil that keep our agricultural machinery going. Without bees, we can't pollinate the foods that we eat. So we need to fundamentally protect uh, protect bees. If you think about what's happening between the conflict in Ukraine and droughts that we're seeing across the South Asian continent and the Middle East that are affecting crops like wheat and potatoes, right? We are developing products that will protect those crops. We are developing an insecticide against the Colorado potato beetle, which is the main insect pest of potatoes. An insecticide that once again is highly specific to the potato beetle and it's harmless to all of the other beneficial insects around it. Potatoes are a staple of food in many, many cultures. And again, one of the biggest producers of potatoes in the world is Ukraine. And so food security is inextricably linked to our human activities. And we have to have 
tools to protect our food supplies that are scalable, that are rapidly deployable, that address those key issues. Another key staple of food you know, in, in Asia, the Middle East, uh, the Americas, is wheat. And wheat is under immense pressure from droughts in India, in Pakistan, and Bangladesh, from the conflict in Ukraine, and so on. One of the main pests of wheat is a fungal pathogen. Fungi are an insane uh, culprit of all the food that gets wasted in our, in our planet. One of the main fungal pathogens of wheat is Fusarium, Fusarium germinarium, which is a fungal, that, a fungi that, that affects most cereals. Well, it's a big problem in wheat. And it wouldn't surprise you to think that we have a product in development that is trying to tackle those. So what we did is we took all of the major issues that we have to grapple in terms of food security and systematically started to figure out how to develop RNA solutions that are highly effective and very specific. And arguably, we'll need these more and more as time goes on. Uh, am I right to say that some of these, uh, particularly maybe on the, the fungi side, uh, are uh, set to perhaps become worse with global warming? Well, we're seeing that already. So what we're seeing is, I mean, number one, fungi account for about 40% of all the food that is wasted every year. Hundreds of millions of metric tons of food get thrown away because they get infected by fungal pathogens. Now, it's kind of hard to get your head around a number like 100 million metric tons. What does that even mean? How many elephants is that, right? Well, the simple way to think about it is if you could save 100 million metric tons of food, that's enough food to feed a billion people for a year. So talk about solving global warming, right? If we can systematically go and target all these fungal pathogens, we could have a significant effect on global hunger, right? So the problem with traditional methods of controlling fungi is that fungi become resistant to the traditional chemical fungicides very, very quickly. Fungi reproduce very quickly and therefore are able to overcome those chemical fungicides. Now, global warming is exacerbating that in two ways. Number one, the more humid and hotter, the faster those fungi reproduce, the faster we see resistance. But number two and most important is the winters are not as cold as they used to be. So individual colonies of fungi that become resistant used to die over the winter. And so we were get, getting kind of a reset button every winter, right? So we had some resistance, but you know, they're all going to be dead because it's so cold. So the next year, we had a chance of those fungicides working again. Well, not anymore. With warmer winters, many of those individual colonies that became resistant are actually surviving until the next spring. And so more and more, we're seeing rapidly arising resistance to all these chemical fungicides. The beauty of RNA is it basically gives us an unlimited number of new targets to go and address pests for which we are running out of tools. Fusarium is a perfect example. It's a fungal pathogen of global importance, billions of dollars in damage, but we're running out of chemical fungicides that are effective against Fusarium. So RNA gives us the opportunity not only to target it in a cleaner and more sustainable way, but also to overcome the resistance that has arisen to those chemical solutions. One of the things that we noticed through uh, our ongoing experience with COVID was, I think, the speed at which some of these RNA uh, 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 vaccines were developed. And you describe a world in which uh, we're getting new pathogens popping up. Uh, what is the advantage of your process for being able to react quickly? So RNA is inherently fast. Um, the way in which RNA works, as I, as I mentioned initially, is we go after messages 
that are abundant in these living organisms. And we can either interfere with one of those messages, that's what we do with the RNA that we use to control insects and fungi, we interfere with the fundamental life process of those pests. And because there are multiple of those vital processes in every living organism, we have a huge arsenal of weapons that we can use against them. And therefore, the speed by which we can choose a new way of preventing uh, pests from destroying our crop, of promoting food safety and food security, is very quick. Now, the big innovation that we had to come up with was not necessarily the speed by, we, we, by which we could come up with new, with new tools, was really the scale and the cost. Because developing an RNA for a vaccine is one thing, and you can virtually char charge anything you want for it. But if you're going to develop a scalable global solution for food security, it needs to be affordable. And not only to farmers in Europe and in the US, it has to be affordable to every farmer in the planet. And so what Greenlight truly did to bring RNA to the forefront was to be able to come up not only with a discovery, with a fast and specific discovery, but also with a scalability and low cost that enables this RNA to be produced in metric ton quantities, because that's how much we're going to need to protect our food supply, and to be able to do it at a cost that will be compatible with the needs of farmers and growers worldwide. That's, that's really interesting to hear. One of the things that um, is always interesting in these conversations is to hear about people's personal motivations for starting uh, their businesses, in this uh, instance, Greenlight Biosciences. Um, and you know, your personal motivation for going into an area like this and the impact that you're hoping to have in the world, which we already heard about, uh, but love to hear your, your thoughts around that. So I think it's a, a, a couple of things, right? One of them is age. At some point you sort of get to an age where you're like, is what I'm doing really meaningful? Am I really leaving something behind that, that is important enough? Um, somebody's going to ask me at the end of my days, you know, whether it's God or your kids or grandkids or whatever, what did you do with, you know, with everything you got? And you better have a good answer because uh, God may forgive you, but your children may not. Um, and so for me, I had uh, worked on the drug development industry my entire life. And, and honestly, I was pretty smug and pretty proud of myself because, you know, I had participated in developing some pretty neat pharmaceuticals, um, things that literally save the lives of tens of thousands of people every year. And so I was feeling pretty good about myself. Um, and then something very unexpected happened, which is I had a kid, my second kid, um, that when we were, you know, sort of transitioning from baby formula and, and mother's milk and so on into solid foods, just wouldn't eat. It was the most frustrating thing ever. Mm -hmm. You can imagine, you are trying to feed your kid and he will not eat, and, and you see him start falling down the curve, right? He's like at 80 percentile, height and weight, and all of a sudden he's at 70 and 50 and 40 and 20. And you're like, what's going on? And some of the foods that you give him actually cause him harm, um, like pain, like the inability to move his extremities, things that are really, really scary. And eventually, I, I'll spare you the story, we traced it back to residues of chemical pesticides on food. And, you know, it was, it was an interesting juncture because I was at the same time looking at global climate change. I had been a part of starting an electric vehicle company, nothing to do with my education. But I figured, look, you know, we got to do something to mitigate global climate change. So 
electric cars, right? Um, and then this thing happened, and all of a sudden it's like a light went off, right? It's like, what's going on with food in our planet? And you start looking into it, and it's outright scary. You know, our, our food production constitutes about 30% of our global greenhouse gas emissions. When you think about it, and then you think that we lose 40% of our food, you're like, this is madness. If we could just recover that 40% of our food, imagine the impact we would have on global climate change. Now, we continue to grow as a population, but the productivity of our fields is no longer growing at the same pace. And in fact, in some cases, it's starting to decline because we've sprayed so much that we've essentially depleted the soil. We've eliminated the fertility of our own earth to grow food. So the trends aren't good, right? You just project those four as like, okay, we're headed to a wall here in a hurry. So we have to do something, and, and, and that's when, when it clicked, right? Here it is, the opportunity to do something meaningful, relevant, and lasting. The ability to not only help my own son, but to help the sons and daughters of many, many people around the world and to actually use all of our collective knowledge to change the paradigm, to shift how we think about food from something that, you know, it's a second thought, how it's grown and where it comes from. We never used to think about that. To now being extraordinarily careful of where our food came from. What are the implications of us eating a particular food in terms of global warming, in terms of um, the chemicals that go into the environment, in terms of taking that food away from somebody else. And so we decided to start the company uh, initially as a means to say, well, let's look at all these places where we're using chemistry today, where we're using fossil hydrocarbons to control a biological process, because that makes no sense, mm. right? Why, why should we use chemistry to deal with biology? Why don't we use biology, which is sustainable and clean and effective and specific, to deal with biological problems? And that's when we started Greenlight. We started Greenlight as a means to create a platform where we could develop biological solutions to deal with the many biological problems that we face as a species, which of course include growing food, combating disease, preserving the environment, promoting biodiversity. Biology provides you with an answer. All we needed is a platform where that biology could actually be developed. And that's what we set out to do about 15 years ago. Creating a biological platform is not easy. Right? Biology likes doing what biology does. Convincing biology to produce an insecticide is not easy. Right? You have to really understand what's happening at the molecular level, at the genetic level. And then you have to invent new ways of, of creating those materials, of scaling them up, of making them inexpensive. So it was, a, it was a long and arduous journey. And now we're beginning to see the rewards, which are truly amazing. Right? The ability to say to my son, that insecticide that made you so sick when you were a kid, we now have something to replace it with that will never harm you and will never harm any other kid in the world and will not harm honeybees or ladybugs or butterflies or any other organism that is not the intended target. I think the general population, you know, there can be a prejudice that, you know, once pharmaceutical companies or biotech companies get involved in food and food production, et cetera, you know, from the 80s and 90s, the GMO and, and all of this stuff. How do you think about and what would you say, you know, around the potential uh, harmful effects, environmental effects of RNA, if any? You know, how should people be thinking about it or differently 
about how the pharmaceutical company today are trying to address food security issues, et cetera, where, where RNA could be different? I think there are two very important aspects of that. The first one is we need to address our concerns. I think the problem that we had in the 80s and 90s was that the companies who were bringing those innovations to market were just basically saying to consumers, you're all stupid, don't worry about it, we got it. You can't do that. You certainly can't do that with people's food. People have a very personal relationship with their food. And, and failure to understand that you know, creates discontent, and that's what happened. So we need to understand what their concerns are. The concerns are typically uh, more linked to lack of information, lack of transparency, lack of clarity than they are with real biological concerns. What we know is what we have tested, and we have tested it because we are mandated to do so by institutions that care about the health of consumers. Institutions like the EPA that say, listen, we're not gonna let you put anything out there that could be harmful to, and then they give you the list, soil, water, air, humans, birds, dogs, cats, fish, bees, etc. And you have to demonstrate to us before we approve your product that you're not going to be able to harm any of those elements. And we systematically went and carried out very detailed, very rigorous analysis of how our RNA interacts with all those organisms. How it interacts with the environment, how it decomposes, how it does not accumulate in soil, water, or air, and how it's harmless to multiple life forms other than the ones that we're intending to target. So I'm not saying the public should just believe us. That's not the way the public works. We should be proactive at communicating what it is that we do, at explaining the fundamentals of our science, at showing the public that our products are safe by design. We designed them to be safe. And then going through the regulatory processes with all rigor, transparency, and integrity to ensure for our own sake and the sake of our own kids that the products that we're bringing to market are safe. So I'm not saying the concerns of the public are not valid. They should be concerned about what they put in their own body. It is The onus is on us to demonstrate the safety and efficacy of what we do. Uh, I think that's that's really interesting and, and uh, lends itself exactly to the argument around the specificity on RNA and, and, and what it does. What I think could be really interesting is is maybe to uh, get a little bit of an inside look into what your first product uh, coming to market would be and, and when you think that would be. Yeah, so we expect our first product to be an insecticide, a highly targeted insecticide against the main insect pest that affects potato fields which is called the Colorado potato beetle. Now, we've submitted our dossier to the EPA in October of 2020. So we are expecting the approval of that first product to occur this year. We are obviously working very closely with the U.S. government and, and with the regulatory agencies to make sure that we have covered every concern that they have, that we have covered every angle in terms of safety, efficacy, and specificity. So we're super excited about this. But the most important part is farmers are really excited about this. Farmers who have been involved in our testing tell us that not only the product works just as well as the chemical that we're trying to replace, but it works better in the sense that now they see beneficial insects thriving. Things like ladybugs, which are commonly depleted by the chemical insecticides, are active on their fields. Now you may think, well, so what? Ladybugs are cute and everything, but why do we care? Well, it turns out ladybugs are actually predators of 
things that are vectors of disease for potatoes. Ladybugs, as sweet as they look, they're carnivores. They're voracious carnivores that feed on things called aphids and mites. And those aphids and mites are capable of transmitting fungal and viral diseases to potato plants. So we're very excited about that. We expect the approval to happen this year, and then we expect the product to be in the market next year. You've started to touch on some of these uh, questions around the commercialization of these technologies and scale and uh, usability of the product at temperature. Uh, maybe we could expand on this a little bit more and talk about just some of the, uh, the other key considerations when bringing this to market, perhaps maybe also talking a bit about which geographies you're uh, focusing on, which regulators you're engaging with. None of these solutions are going to be truly effective unless we make them global. Food needs to be available globally. People need to be able to care for their food no matter where they are. It is kind of sad to think that the insecticides fungicides and products available to people, for example, in Africa, are the same things that we were using in the U.S. 50 years ago, which of course don't work nearly as well and are not nearly as safe as some of the products that are available in, in other geographies. And we have to move away from this fallacy that we can fend for ourselves and everything will be okay. COVID taught us that. Nobody's safe until everybody's safe. In order to mitigate global warming, to promote global biodiversity, to have a sustainable global food production system, those products eventually will need to be available everywhere. And so our engagement with farmers, with regulators, with governments needs to be international. We just opened a research station in Spain um, that allows us to test our products worldwide. All around the year, every season, we are looking into opening a research station in Africa run by people in Africa, by African scientists, that will be looking to bring specific solutions to crops and pests that they care about. And so to think that we're going to be able to carry out research to cover their needs in the U.S. Is, is nonsensical. We need to not only create the solutions, but further, we need to create a platform that is shareable, open source, that allows anyone anywhere in the world to develop those products. So where are we focused? All over the place. We need to, because climate change is not going to respect borders. We need to fundamentally change the way in which we grow food in every continent, especially in places where the population growth is explosive, especially in places where the economic growth is explosive. One of every four people is going to be from Africa over the next 20 years. The most fertile continent and the most biodiverse continent is Africa. They're not going to be able to grow food sustainably with 50-year-old chemical tools. We need to allow them to leapfrog what we've done in the North. And we need to be able to do so affordably and profitably because we're a business and we need to create a business model that is going to create return for our, for our investors while being global, while being safe, while being effective. That's the real challenge. It actually makes coming up with RNA solutions easy compared to this globalization of a platform technology to enable everybody to develop their own products. And that's really what we're looking forward to doing. It would be great to hear uh, some thoughts about the respective price point of your product versus a conventional chemical solution, say for the Colorado potato beetle. What enables you to achieve that price point in your manufacturing facilities, for example, and talk a little bit about how, uh, yeah, how operationally you're, uh, you're, you're set up from a manufacturing standpoint? Well, thank you for that question because that is actually the most important question. Scientists have known for a while, for decades, that RNA could be used very effectively to control pests. That's not the secret, right? As, as we talked at the beginning, 
RNA being the messenger of life um, is incredibly powerful. And so if you have RNA solutions, you can really control a number of these biological processes. That was never the problem. The problem was that when we started, RNA was thousands of dollars per gram, thousands of dollars per gram, because it was made chemically. Now, we use anywhere between five and 10 grams per acre of crop. So if RNA was thousands of dollars per gram, our insecticide would have to be priced at tens of thousands of dollars per acre. And that was never going to work. In order to make this work, we had to take something that was thousands of dollars per gram and make it for less than a buck. We had to take four or five orders of magnitude out of the cost of a very elegant biological solution. By the way, when we told people that that's what we wanted to do, they told us we were crazy. And not just any people, Nobel laureates, two of them, told us that what we were trying to do was in fact impossible. That there was no way that we would be able to make RNA that was as effective, as clean, as specific as what they were making chemically for less than a dollar per gram. And of course, we're in the business of proving the impossible, right? And so we went and did it. It wasn't overnight. It took eight years of hard, fundamental, rigorous scientific research. But what that enabled us to do, now put the equation back, right? If you were producing RNA at less than a dollar per gram and you're using five grams per acre, you can have a solution that costs five to ten dollars per acre that you can actually price at parity with the chemical pesticides, which are in the twenty to fifty dollars an acre. And so all of a sudden you have something that is as effective as a chemical, as inexpensive as a chemical, that can be produced at the same scale as these chemical solutions, but is going to be safe, effective, and specific. And of course, even then, you go to a farmer and say, I have a solution that is clean, cheap, effective, and scalable, and they say, show me, right? They're not going to take your word for it. And so here we go. And we're running field trials in you know, three continents with a multitude of different crops uh, across hundreds of different uh, fields with multiple collaborators. Uh, and you have to do that because, again, you know, people will, will trust the science if you show them, if you're transparent, if you're rigorous in your analysis. Could you talk maybe a little bit about the role that automation plays in your facilities? And, and I believe I'm right in saying that you have the world's largest RNA manufacturing facility? We think our facility in Rochester, New York, is the largest manufacturing facility for RNA in the planet. Today, it's running at a rate of about 500 kilograms of RNA per year. And I think by the end of the year, we'll have it wired to run at about a metric ton of RNA per year. And we call that our pilot facility. Uh, it will support the launch of our potato beetle product, and it will also be able to support the launch of our pollinator protector pro product. But then we're going to have to build even a bigger facility, probably somewhere between 50 and 100 metric tons of RNA to support all the launches of the products that are in our pipeline. And so, yes, we have not only the uh, largest, but also the least expensive RNA manufacturing facility in the planet. In terms of automation, what enabled us to have a product, a first product, was this scientific breakthrough of low cost and large scale. That gave rise to one product. But as I said before, what we really needed was a platform, an open source stage where people could develop solutions for any pathogen, for any pest. That required significant investment in not only automation, but machine learning and, and data management. So the way in which we discover new solutions, wh whether they are for 
uh, food protection or animal health or human health is we start with data. We start looking at fundamental biological processes and understanding that and understanding how we can modify those processes to obtain the effect that we want. And so we start by looking at the genome of organisms, of insects, fungal pathogens, viruses, bacteria, anything that we're trying to stop. And the machine learning algorithms that we have built basically give us a list of targets. The computer tells us if you want to stop a Colorado potato beetle or a Fusarium fungi, here are a hundred ways to do so that should be feasible based on the biology of the organism. But that's all the computer does, right? It just tells you what's possible. And then the onus is on you to actually make those RNA triggers and test them. So in order to do that, we had to create automated synthesis tools that would be able to make hundreds of RNA sequences at a time, and automated screening tools that will be able to test those RNA tools against their intended target. We have put that together now, and we, that has given us the ability to go from identification of a pathogen in a field, in anywhere in the world, to creation of enough compound to test in a greenhouse or a field in 90 days. It's a true breakthrough because we don't know when new pathogens are going to arrive and we're going to see resistance to a pest of all. And we're going to have to come up with solutions very, very quickly and test those solutions in large scale. And so being able to go from ID to field testing in 90 days is unheard of. Just for reference, if we were a chemical company developing chemical solutions, that process would take maybe four to five years and costing the order of tens of millions of dollars for each product. We can do this with hundreds of targets in a very short period of time. So it'd be really interesting to hear your perspectives on, you know, what does the future look like for green light biosciences, but also specifically around RNA solutions if we look 5, 10, 15, 20 years out in the future, what would be your guess? RNA has truly risen up as a new class of biological solution, as a new class of product. My projection is that we will see products that are based on RNA, that are RNA-based products, just about every major category of human activity. We already have several products approved for vaccines in human health. Uh, my guess is we will continue to see new vaccines developed to protect against infectious diseases, but also RNA-based vaccines to protect against things like cancer. We will also see RNA-based therapeutics. There's already a couple of those approved that are small interfering RNAs. My guess is over the next 10 years we'll see a number of messenger RNA therapeutics that address chronic disorders as well as genetic disorders. In my opinion, RNA will be as important a category in human health as protein therapeutics or gene therapies. Uh, it will be one of the major categories of uh, human health products over the next decade. I believe that our technology will enable also RNA to be broadly used in animal health, which of course has the implication of veterinary health, protecting cattle, protecting household pests and so on but also protecting our food supply and protecting ourselves while protecting the food supply. And let me explain. It is very likely that we will continue to see pandemics arise at an accelerated rate. Most of those pandemics, we are unsure where COVID came from, 
but most likely it came from an animal. And that close proximity between humans and livestock is continuing to increase and at an even accelerated rate. That means more chickens and more pigs and more cows. It also means that population continues to grow. Those animals and those people are going to be more closely together. And the likelihood that we will see another pandemic come from avian flu or from swine flu or some other disease that we haven't even dreamed of is very, very high. So vaccinating those animals against things like influenza will become really important. Today, simply not possible. We would have to come up with vaccines that are a penny to vaccinate the 30 billion chickens that are grown and consumed every year in the world. Well, RNA may provide us an avenue to do so, and I think our technology could be instrumental in enabling that. So we're going to see broad solutions in, in veterinary medicine as well as in protecting livestock. And then finally, at least what we envision, is a world where we can take every chemical solution that is used in the growth of food today and figure out a way to replace it with RNA. Now what's really important here is that RNA will be the first of many other biological tools and eventually we will be able to replace all chemicals in our food supply. We will have to come up with biological fertilizers, with biological plant stimulants and, and they need to be, just like RNA is, highly specific and sustainable. So what Greenlight will do is really those three things. We will create a platform just like we've created a platform for agricultural crop protection. We will create a platform that enables us to rapidly develop solutions for human health and for animal health. The human health one is well on its way. We have a COVID vaccine booster candidate that we're hoping to start a clinical trial very soon in Africa. COVID is not over. And when you look at Africa, that still has a vaccination rate lower than 10% because of lack of availability of effective vaccines and vaccine hesitancy. So developing a vaccine that is tested in Africa, that was specifically designed for Africa, we believe will be a very important tool in finally overcoming COVID. The last three mutations that we have seen that have taken over the world rapidly, Omicron, A2, and A5, were all first identified in Africa. And until we have a very high rate of vaccination in Africa, it is likely that we will continue to see that. So we need to enable the same type of speed, throughput, and scale that we have already achieved in food protection for human health and eventually for veterinary health. So over the next five years, what you will see is you will see many of our products in agriculture go through the cycle, um, from discovery to greenhouse testing to field testing to commercial introduction. And we will be working throughout that time um, to communicate with the public, to inform farmers, to seek out partners so that we can bring the solutions globally. Eventually, I think what the future holds for Greenlight is to truly have an open platform, a platform where anybody can develop an RNA product and can really trust that there will be a manufacturing platform and a partner to help them develop it and bring it to the market. So what would you, um, in terms of uh, RNA and potential adverse impacts on the environmental side, are there any uh, at, at all and how, how do you think about that? Well, what we know is that RNA is incredibly specific. So it only targets the pests that we're trying to kill. So it will have no impact that we have seen and we have tested broadly 
on any of the other insects or fungi or microbes in the soil. Now, evidently, we're killing something. Like you're protecting a potato field, you have to kill a Colorado potato beetle. The thing is, when you're growing crops like we're doing industrially, you're already interfering with nature and you're creating basically a perfect bed for some of these pests to thrive. That is not natural. That's not their natural habitat. That is not how, they're, how they behave in nature. So you're not, actu you're not actually disrupting any cycle by going after some of these fungal pathogens or insects because they wouldn't be there naturally anyway. You're attracting them because you're creating a crop that is very attractive to them. Right? If you take, for example, powdery mildew, which is one of, our, one of our products, that affects primarily things like grapes that are used in winemaking. Well, why are they affecting our grape supply? Well, because we're creating these vineyards with extraordinarily high populations of grapes that we're keeping the void of any chemical because we want that wine to be organic and clean and whatnot. So we're going to see an abundance of this fungi that comes into that, into that field. Now, for many other instances, we have beneficial fungi that grow on the ground, that process carbon, that process nitrogen. We need to preserve those because those are there naturally. So it's a little bit unfair to say, well, you know, but if you truly wanted to, you know, grow something, you got to grow it exactly like nature intended. Yeah, that would have worked about a thousand years ago when we were 500 million people on the planet. Yeah. When you have seven, mil seven, seven and a half billion people on the planet, you need to grow food industrially. And if you do that, you're going to attract pests to those fields and you're going to have to protect those fields. Now, the beauty of RNA, of course, is we don't mess with the genetic makeup of any of the organisms. RNA is not GMO. RNA is a transitory, non-permanent solution. It goes, it kills the bug or the fungi that it needs to kill, and then it disappears. It does not get integrated into the genome of the plant or the organism. It is a transient solution that does its job and then is completely gone. What role do you feel uh, the overall asset management industry, capital markets, can play um, in having impact, particularly uh, with a company like yours? You know, it's obviously critical for our business to continue to have access to financing. If we were developing a single product, we would develop that product, sell it, make it profitable, and then reap the profits of that to build the next product. And ideally, we would do that, except the solutions that we're trying to bring to market are urgent, are needed now. So we don't really have the time to build this organically by bootstrapping. We need financing. The type of financing that is suitable for a company like ours can't really be something that is tracking to the Nasdaq or the Russell or whatever, simply because those are so focused on performance over the next quarter that they're counterproductive to the types of things that we really need to do as humans. When you think about affecting a fundamental change in the way in which we grow food and provide food security globally, it's not gonna happen in a quarter. We wish it would happen in a quarter, but the reality is it not only necessitates brand new science to be invented, it also requires a fundamental change in behavior globally. This is something that we are trying to affect over years, if not decades. And so we need investors that are deeply aligned with a long-term value creation that this new breakthrough solutions really can bring to the market. Getting the support from somebody like BNP Paribas uh, and specifically the Environmental Fund is not only helpful today in that we need capital to 
operate, but it is in the way in which other investors view the vote of confidence, the rigorous analysis. And so what we are trying to do as a company is to really bring on board investors that represent the will of the people who invest in them, which is what we fundamentally want is a transparent world where we can all enjoy on the bounty of our planet in a way that is sustainable. I have kids. I don't want my money going to something that is going to perform for the next quarter but may sacrifice their own future. I need something that ensures that they're going to be able to have food to eat and access to medicines and the ability to live in a world with peace and harmony, which we will not have if we continue to see collapse of ecosystems. And so for me, there needs to be a whole generation of asset managers that follow in this model and that say, well, listen, yeah, we can track to funds and maybe attract even more investors than we would otherwise. But what impact would we be having? The reason I like working with you guys is you're not measuring things only based on profit. It has to be profitable, right? We're not charities here. It has to be profitable, but it has to be impactful. It has to be able to be measured, just like when we started the interview, in terms of tens of thousands of lives saved. Because at the end of the day, by creating cleaner, more sustainable food production systems, we are saving lives. We may not be able to see it as directly as when you develop a cancer drug, but you are saving lives in the long run. That was very educational, and I think there are a lot of important messages in that today. And for those of you who are coming and joining us today and listening, you know, I think uh, we think that you've had the opportunity to hear from one of the most interesting and impactful companies engaged in uh, real meaningful environmental solution development that's in the market today. Uh, across biodiversity, which is really notoriously difficult, I think, to address in an honest way, uh, and Greenlight Biosciences does, uh, but also food security, which is incredibly topical, uh, as well as uh, human health, our, our health. So with all of that in mind, Dr. Zurer, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you.